Today's scripture is from Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Will you pray with me as we prepare to dive into God's word? Father, we come to you this morning um, just aware of a lot of darkness in our world. And even this text points to darkness. And some of the songs we sang remind us of the, the darkness and injustice that fills our world. And so we come to you just burdened, many of us, by the darkness in our world, by the darkness in our lives, we come to you. I know there are so many people here suffering in big ways and in small ways, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. Lord, we have an awful lot of brokenness in our midst. And it's hard at times to not, to not feel like that's going to overwhelm us or suffocate us or just strangle the life out of us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that your spirit will move in our midst through your word, through the lives of one another, and bring a profound sense of hope that, God, you are greater than the darkness, you're greater than the suffering, and you've made very particular promises to us that the suffering and darkness will not last forever. And so, God, stir in us a hope that longs for you to come through on those promises. Lord, awaken us where we've grown complacent, Convict us where we've grown comfortable with sin and lift us up where we feel like we are just sagging in life. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of your son. Amen. A few weeks ago, our staff got to spend time with one of my favorite people on this earth. It's a guy named Lyle, and Lyle is... He does leadership training and coaching. He's a brilliant guy, and he, he's kind of worked with pretty much anyone you can think of. He's worked with a ton of Fortune 500 companies. He's worked with NBA teams, 
NFL teams, the military, three-star generals. Uh, and so he's brilliant. He's got a ton of experience, but he's also a Christian, which is I'm grateful for because he cuts us a discount, doesn't charge us the same as he does the Patriots uh, to come and speak in and train us and challenge us. And Lyle was actually, he used to be the executive pastor of one of the larger, probably 10 largest churches in America. And he's just a fascinating guy. I don't know if you have any friends like that, that you could just sit and listen to him talk. He's a fascinating guy. And Lyle travels about 200 days a year with his job. And I forget what had happened the morning that he was in, but I was listening to the news and something bad happened, you know, which is pretty common these days. And something tragic had recently happened in the church as well. And so I asked him, I said, Lyle, you travel the country, meet with a lot of people. Is it just me or does it seem like things are getting worse? And I was hoping for good news. And Lyle, he said, no, it's not just you. He said, I've been traveling on and off, you know, for 20 years. And he's like, the world, our country, he said, people are angrier than I've ever seen them. I see it in the airports. I see it waiting in line for cabs or Ubers. I see it in restaurants. And he said, and people are more anxious than ever. And he sees that when he meets with organizations, just listening to the questions that they're asking. I mean, we see this, all the statistics show that anxiety and depression and suicide are just going through the roof right now in our culture. And I was like, well, that's the world. What about the church? And he said, I'm not really encouraged there either, to be quite frank with you. He said, 80% of the churches that I visit I leave very discouraged. And he'd just shown up and we hadn't paid him yet. So I said, I assume we're in the 20% that you're really encouraged by. Uh, and he said, of course. Um. <laughs> but we talked, he's a guy who like knows all the big pastors. And, and we kind of just talked about the American church and talked about just scandal after scandal that's hit the church, the Catholic church, but also the evangelical church. Talked about the fact that most of the pastors that I, I grew up reading and listening to, and like, they were the ones who really spurred me into ministry. Most of them from 15 or 20 years ago are now out of the ministry because they either resigned or they were removed. And just how disorienting that is, these guys that I used to love and look up to, I've got their books on my shelf. I've actually got a few shelves in my office of books that I'm like, I don't want to throw them away, but I'm never quoting this guy again. And we talked about just the church's place and culture that 70% of American churches are either plateaued or declining. 10,000 churches close their doors every year. There's only 400,000 churches in America. Now, luckily, we're planting and doing some other things, and God's faithful. But if, if the trend doesn't change, the church in America is virtually gone in less than 100 years. I mean, that's staggering to think about. The public's trust in pastors, something that's particularly, you know, interesting to me. In 1985, over two-thirds of Americans viewed pastors as trustworthy. Now, 35%. Pastors are behind nurses, doctors, teachers, and police officers, but we're still ahead of used car salesmen and politicians. So we've got that going for us. Uh, What's so interesting to me when I think about these numbers is that it was about 30 years ago that the church started talking about, like, we need to find a new way to do church. And, like, we need to find a new way to, 
to reach the world. And what happened was, is it was like, what, what's going, what does our world do and how can we replicate that in the church? That was the approach. And I don't want to dismiss all of that. It's, some of it's kind of complicated. I do want to say we have to look and say something bad happened though. That when the emphasis in the church became on, like, how can we make a great show? And how can we compete with the greatest shows that are out there? And, like, let's put our money there. And then pastors, you know, who are leading these churches, when almost all of them have been removed because of unrepentant sin or abusive leadership, we have to ask, something has gone wrong with this model. And we have to look and say, maybe there's a course correction that's needed. Especially when you consider the fact that two-thirds of the kids raised in the church right now, sorry, 10 years ago, right now, two-thirds of kids raised in the church are leaving it by the age of 20. Two-thirds. We're told 14 million in a matter of about 10 years. We're not losing some people. We're losing a generation. I can't help but think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. When I think about the American church, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And I look at the church and I feel like we've lost our saltiness. We've lost our, our prophetic edge. We've lost our potency, our power. We've lost that sense of calling that we exist, not just to glorify God, but to glorify God by modeling on this world what a countercultural community looks like that's devoted to Jesus. And in trying to assimilate into culture, we lost our power, and now there's so much of our culture that does. They look at the church, and they look at it as something to trample upon. And not like with hostility so much anymore. More, it's like the trampling of irrelevance. And so I know that's a lot of discouraging stuff, like welcome to Sojourn. Um, but I do say all that to say, like, let's be honest about where we are. But I also want you to hear, in the midst of all of this stuff that's discouraging, I'm not discouraged. I'm actually filled with a profound sense of hope and even anticipation. And here's why. Number one, Jesus Christ promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And for 2,000 years, he's come through on that promise. And so I'm not worried that he's going to bail on it now. The second reason I'm not discouraged and I'm actually filled with hope is because of y'all. Because I know so many of you, and I get to be around you, and I get to see what God's doing in your life, and the way you hunger for God, and you hunger to obey and honor him with your life and serve him. And then the third reason I'm not discouraged is because I know church history. And I know that if you study church history, some of the greatest moments in church history were born out of seasons of great darkness and discouragement. That it's often in times of great spiritual complacency that God brings about deep spiritual renewal. That the church, the sleepy Christians in the church wake up. The people who are on the fringe of the church get converted and get baptized. And that God awakens a holy longing in his people where they start to actually pray again. And they start to pray very particular prayers like thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. They're hungry for it where God stirs in them a hunger to not be okay with the status quo, but to desire and to long and to hope 
for him to show up and move in powerful ways. And I look, you know, it's kind of like a meteorologist. I'm looking at all the conditions, and it's like, man, the conditions are right for something like that to happen. And so I'm filled with a sense of hope, and I want to fill you with a sense of hope this morning from this text. And this text is a great text to do that from because the text is filled with some hard things, right? It's a hard text to read. But this passage is really a message of hope. But not hope in kind of an ethereal, intangible way. It talks about hope in a very real, grounded way. And it shows us some of the enemies of hope, two of the enemies of hope, naivety and cynicism. And then it helps us move forward into real, true, biblical hope. And so we're going to look at it under two headings. We're going to look at the savagery of Herod and how that should, should bring death to our naivety. And then we're going to look at the faithfulness of God and how that should put to death our cynicism. cynicism. Starting with Herod. If you weren't here last week, uh, these wise men known as the Magi came from the east looking for the one born king of the Jews. And when they roll into Jerusalem, Herod gets word of this and he gets really uh, uptight about this because he actually has the title king of the Jews. And so he's already a paranoid man who feels like now someone's threatening his throne. And so he kind of figures out where the Messiah was supposed to be born and he sends the Magi there and he says, after you found him, come back and tell me where he is so that I can go and worship him. Well, the Magi go to Bethlehem, they bow down, they worship, and then God warns them in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they, they sneak out of town. And that's where we're picking up the text today in verse 16, that when Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all of the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod's paranoia boils over. And he learned that Jesus is about two years old at this time, but he doesn't want to take any chances, so he tells his henchmen, go kill every baby boy in Bethlehem and around the area, two years old or under. Just wipe them out. Knowing what we know, the population at that time was probably 20 to 30 baby boys, which is maybe less than you think. You know, that's still 20 or 30 lives that were taken. It's 20 or 30 sets of bereaved parents. And what's so fascinating to me is that Matthew, who spent 30 years composing his gospel, chose to include this story. Like this would have been an easy one to edit out, right? You know, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't have it in theirs. Matthew didn't have to include it. Why does Matthew include this for us? And I think the answer, at least what sticks out to me and what the Spirit's been stirring in me is that by including this story, Matthew, he refuses to allow us to cover the birth of Jesus with a blanket of sentimentality. And he refuses to allow us to turn the promises of Jesus into just some kind of ethereal hope with no bearing in this world. 
Because if you remember, Matthew begins his gospel with these massive promises. He's like, in Jesus, there's a new genesis, a new beginning. He's the Messiah that everyone's been longing for. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He is the long-awaited king. I mean, massive claims. All of your deepest hopes and longings are found in this man. He's the one who's going to bring an end to all evil and injustice and sin. He's the one who's going to put the world back right. Matthew's gospel is a manifesto of hope. And he writes this gospel so that we might be overflowing with hope in who Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish. So he wants us to be very hopeful but he doesn't want us to be naive. And there's a difference between the two. And by including this horrific act by Herod, Matthew's guarding us against spiritual naivety. There are two naive notions. There are a lot, but two that I want to pull out from this text that I see in the church, and I even see in myself, these kind of things that we believe that just aren't grounded in reality. Number one, this text dispels that notion we have that the evil in this world was eradicated or severely diminished by the birth of Christ. This act, it dispels any notion we might have that the evil in this world was eradicated or severely diminished by the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus Christ came to this world, it didn't mean an immediate end to all of the darkness. It meant that light has broken through the darkness. And there's a world of difference between those two things. And sitting with this text over the last couple of weeks, I was struck by two things. One, the brutality of it. Just especially when you start humanizing these boys and really thinking about it thinking about the fact that if Mary and Joseph got to come back to Bethlehem like they'd wanted to, Jesus would have been the only boy in his first grade class. Their family would have been completely probably ostracized by the community. Just the utter brutality of it. But the second thing that stuck out to me was that when you get some space, you realize this brutal act, it isn't some kind of strange anomaly in our world. It's really par for the course of human history. And really, this act by Herod, it pales in comparison to evil we've seen in the world even in the last hundred years. I mean, the numbers are so big, we can't wrap our minds around them, but Stalin killed at least seven million people. Not soldiers, people. Hitler was six million. Pol Pot killed three million Cambodians. Uh, There were over a million Tutsis murdered in Rwanda. That's like half of genocide around the world in the last hundred years. And I can't read this text without thinking about the reality that that in our country, between 1,500 and 2,000 children are aborted every single day. 2,000 kids put to death every single day in our country, which is a hundred times what Herod did. And knowing the stats, I know, that, I know that there are a lot of women in this room who've had an abortion. And if that's you, I want you to know a few things. One, I'm grateful you're here. And I don't want to shame you. And 
there is some complexity around this issue as far as our culture is concerned. What I mean by that is it's not just like it, this happened in isolation. There's a, there's a whole culture that's complicit with this tragedy of abortion. And so if you're here, I want you to know I'm glad you're here. I'm not pointing a finger at you. There's profound hope that's found in Jesus and healing and forgiveness. We're not going to point a finger at you. I do want to point a finger at a culture that encourages this to happen. A culture in which it costs $500 to have an abortion, to abort a child, but it costs $20,000 or more to adopt a child. Something is wrong in that kind of culture. Something is wrong in a culture where politicians cheer and high-five each other and light up the night sky celebrating that now in their state, they're allowed to put to death perfectly viable children right up to 40 weeks, right up to leaving the birth canal. I want to point a finger at our culture which perpetuates this lie that the way to your happiness, you know, for you to be happy, sometimes it costs, costs another person their life. And I want to point a finger lastly and most fiercely at the church. The church which often wields shame as a weapon, is quick to cast stones, and it leads women who are in the hardest, most vulnerable moment of their life, leads them to think, if I go there, I'm going to be shamed, pushed to the margins, and ostracized. And so the church leads them to hide because they don't see any hope for help or healing in the church. Like there's a whole lot of complicity to go around. And so we can and we, we should look at Herod's actions with horror, but we must not think it's something strange or unusual. We must not think, man, they were really violent back then. Here's how one author put it. Perhaps no event in the gospel more determinatively challenges the sentimental depiction of Christmas than the death of these children. Jesus is born into a world in which children are killed and continue to be killed to protect the power of tyrants. The victory of the resurrection does not mean that these children are any less dead or their parents any less bereaved, but rather resurrection makes it possible for followers of Jesus not to lie about the world that we believe has been and is being redeemed. So we don't have to be naive. We can be honest that there's a lot of darkness and brokenness in this world. The second naive notion that this text dispels is this belief that, that you can be close to Jesus and live at peace in this world. It's this belief that like if we, we can stay close to Jesus and we're not going to necessarily face opposition in this world. And I, I fall into this kind of naivety before, and I see it a lot with Christians today, this, this belief, like, if we could just get the real message of Jesus out, then everyone would believe. Anyone else ever felt like that? I felt like that. But then you got to think, well, probably no one got the message of Jesus out better than Jesus, and they killed him. So, so yeah. 
what we see in this text is that the world's hatred of Jesus, it always spills over into the lives of those associated with them. What I mean is Herod's got hatred and violence towards Jesus, and Mary and Joseph end up as refugees in Egypt fearing for their life. It spills over there, it spills over in the lives of all these families who just, they were neighbors of Jesus. And they had to bury their own children. And this story illustrates for us the inescapable reality that to associate with Jesus is to face the world's hostility. And that's why Jesus, he ends the Beatitudes. You know, the Beatitudes, people love the Beatitudes, even if they don't understand them, but they love them because they sound noble and spiritual, like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful. I even know a lot of non-Christians who are like, man, I love the Beatitudes. Maybe, but do you love the last one? Do you remember what the final beatitude was? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now I want to be careful here because the last thing I want is to give us a persecution or martyr complex where anytime we face hostility, we chalk it up to following Jesus. You know, sometimes we face hostility because we're not keeping in step with the Spirit. Sometimes we face hostility because we're actually not obeying Jesus. And sometimes we face hostility because Christians were just jerks sometimes. And there are some Christians who, like, they love to be jerks and then say, like, ah, oh, being persecuted for following Jesus. No, you're a jerk. And people are responding appropriately to you. So I, I want to be careful. And there might be some people who have a tendency to that extreme. I think in our church, we probably tend to the other extreme of thinking, no, we can, we can navigate peacefully through this world. This text shows us we can't follow Jesus and live at total peace with this world. His claims, they're just too massive. His claims, they push people to the extremes. You know, when he, the Magi rolled into Jerusalem, if they would have said, where is he who was born our personal savior? Herod probably wouldn't have cared. It's like, oh, he's your personal savior. The problem was they rolled in, they said, where is, where is he who's been born king? And with king comes authority, authority over our world, authority over our lives, our money, our sexuality, our decisions. That's what angers Herod, this claim to authority, and that's what angers our world. Our world's fine with advice. We love advice. You know, that's what, that's what Facebook's for. We just post, here's 17 awesome pieces of advice for having a cooler kitchen, you know, or 16 gadgets that you gotta have. We love advice, we don't like authority. And Jesus comes with authority. See, and Herod, in telling us of Herod's slaughter of these baby boys, Matthew, he's guarding us against spiritual naivety. And I've said things that most of you are like, yeah, I know this. Yeah, we know it, but we also, we forget it all the time. Because the challenge for so many of us, and I'm speaking a bit in generality, but the challenge for so many of us is that, that we live like some of the most comfortable lives, generally speaking, of any people throughout human history. 
Like we are very blessed. And we like have some privileges that people didn't used to have. We can see a lot of darkness, but an awful lot of us in this room, we can also turn off the TV or close the laptop or go on with our day. And sometimes we have to. That's another discussion, but we can be overwhelmed. If we want to go find darkness, we can find it to wait in for days and days and days. My fear, though, is we can grow not even desensitized, but we can try to be naive and close, close the laptop and ignore the darkness in the world. And when that happens, we grow complacent spiritually because we neglect the fact that there is an ongoing raging conflict between the kingdom of God and this present darkness. We forget the fact that Jesus actually came for a reason and he's trying to achieve certain things in our world. We kind of just check out. We got to guard against naivety, but we also have to guard against cynicism. After saying all of that, it's kind of like, this world's a cold, dark place. I'm just going to retreat. Well, that's not the right response either. And I would say, while what jumps off the page, at least for me, is Herod's murder of these boys. Maybe it's because I've got three baby boys of my own. What jumps off the page for me is that. But when you actually look at this text as a whole, this is, this is a profoundly hopeful passage. And the minor note is Herod's evil. The major note is God's faithfulness. And we see this in a lot of different ways. One, we see God warning through dreams over and over again. He warns the Magi. And then he warns Joseph just repeatedly. Joseph's having all of these crazy dreams. And Matthew's trying to show us God's not absent in the midst of the darkness. God is actually actively at work in protecting and preserving his son so that he might actually fulfill the mission that he's been sent to do, his work of redemption. He wants us to see that in the midst of the darkness, God is still in complete control and he is fulfilling his word and his promises. And that word fulfill, it's a major theme in Matthew's gospel. A few weeks back, Dr. Pennington talked about how this, this word was going to come up again and again. Fulfill is a major theme for Matthew. It's used three times in this passage. And what fulfill shows us is that God is not absent. He is not unaware, but rather he is actively at work. The first time the word fulfill shows up is in verse 15. You know, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they go to Egypt, and then they come out of Egypt eventually to go to Nazareth. And Matthew, in verse 15, he says that that whole endeavor, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And so he's calling back to this Old Testament prophecy, which said, he's like, these are connected. Now, you can't be faulted if you think the reference that he's pointing to there is some reference about a Messiah who was going to be born and then come out of Egypt. Like, that would be what I would expect. Right now, you're like, oh, there must be some prophecy about a Messiah coming from Egypt. What's really interesting is if you go read the passage Matthew's talking about, it actually is, it's not a passage, at least when Hosea wrote it, he wasn't talking about something to come in the future. He was talking about something to come in the past, something to happen in the past. He was pointing to God's deliverance of his people in the Exodus. God liked to call Israel my son. So it's strange, like, what's Matthew doing here? It kind of feels like he's playing a little fast and loose with the text, like, is there something I can point to? But then he goes on, and, 
After Herod slaughters the boy, Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. If you go read this one in the context, Jeremiah wasn't saying one day an evil king is going to slaughter a bunch of baby boys and, and the people of God are going to mourn. Jeremiah spoke these words after God's people were taken into exile. This might be a part of Old Testament history that we're less familiar with, but the short of it is that the Babylonians came and attacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the, the city, and then they took all of the people captive, to, and they dragged them off to a place just north of Jerusalem called Ramah, and while they were there, they split them up, split up loved ones, friends, and families, and tore families apart, many of whom would never see each other again as they were shipped off to different parts of the world. It was one of the most tragic, gut-wrenching scenes in Israel's history. It was a time of bitter weeping and lamentation. And Matthew goes back and he pulls that text and brings it to bear here. Now, if you actually go back and read all of Jeremiah 31, that's a really sad verse. But you'll actually find that Jeremiah 31 is one of the most hope-filled passages in the entire Old Testament. Because after writing these words, Jeremiah continues, really the Lord continues, the Lord speaks, and he says, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Later in that chapter is when God promises to make a new covenant with his people and take out their heart of stones and give them hearts of flesh and that all people will know him and worship him. And, and what Matthew is doing here with both of these passages, I know we kind of did a deep dive. Let's come back to the surface and breathe. Because I want you to see that Matthew is doing something that's profoundly theological here. When Matthew says that Jesus fulfills these texts, he's not saying there was this very particular prediction, and look, Jesus fulfilled it. He's saying that these things are connected, and even more, he's saying that Jesus is the culmination of God's biggest promises. Matthew, in connecting all of these things, he's saying all of those things that happened in the past, those were like shadows to which Jesus is the substance. And so the great story of the Israelites was the exodus, their deliverance from the evil reign of the murderous Pharaoh. God redeemed his people by bringing them out of their slavery in Egypt. Matthew's saying now in Christ, God is mercifully redeeming his people by bringing a savior out of Egypt. But Jesus, he's not just another Moses. He's the substance of which Moses was the shadow. In the same way, when Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31, he's saying, yes, your pain and anguish are real, but there's hope for your future in this child who's going to more fully fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy. Jesus, he's not just another Jeremiah promising the new covenant. He's the one that sealed the new covenant. And this is why Paul writes, all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so the faithfulness that Matthew is saying is, listen, all of the stories in the Old Testament, they're pointing to him. All of the promises, they point to him. All of the deepest longings, which are encapsulated by those stories and promises, are going to be fulfilled in him. Don't give up hope. 
And then he gives one more fulfillment. <laughs> and this one's even harder. Very end, it says, after Jesus and his family returned from Egypt, this is after they returned from Egypt, Matthew says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this is really interesting to me, and this has really challenged Bible teachers throughout the years, because there's no prophecy about the Messiah coming out of Nazareth. Nazareth actually isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. Because that's the kind of place Nazareth was. You know, you know backwater towns? Nazareth was like the backwater town to the backwater towns. Like it was the one place that you could, no matter where you're from, you could always say, well, at least I'm not from Nazareth. It was in the sticks. It was in the middle of nowhere. It was a source of much ridicule. It was the butt of jokes. And so Matthew says that this is where Jesus and his family settled. I mean, it's crazy to think that Jesus would spend 20-some-odd years of his life in the backwater town of the backwater towns. While there was no particular prophecy about Nazareth, there were a lot of prophecies that the Savior of the world would be despised and rejected, that we would show him no esteem, that he'd be overlooked, kind of like someone born and raised in Nazareth. And so that leads to the question, like, why, why include this? Why did God come in this way? I don't know about you, I was talking with some of the other pastors and preachers this week. When I read this passage, one of the questions that hit me early on is, God, you preserved Jesus. Why didn't you save those other boys? Anyone else wrestle with that question? Why don't you give a dream and save them? But the problem is we go down that road, and it's like there's no end to that road. Why didn't you step in here? Why didn't you step in here? Why didn't you fix this? Before long, as you go down that road, you're going to eventually ask the question, God, why don't you just come in fire and judgment and wipe all evil from the face of the earth. Why don't you do that? We want that. We want it now. And of course, the answer is, if God wiped all evil from the face of the earth, he'd have to wipe us out too. Because we all have evil and sin in our hearts. And Jesus, when he came the first time, he didn't come to wipe evil and sin out from the world, he came to take evil and sin on himself, to take our judgment so that we could be redeemed. And when he came, his kingdom broke into this world and his kingdom is actually like, his kingdom is moving right now. And we're told that when he comes again, his kingdom is going to be in his fullness, sin's going to be no more, suffering's going to be no more, injustice is going to be no more. But now we kind of live in that, that time between the times. And I think where we get confused is we don't always see his kingdom. But when Jesus announced that his kingdom was coming, he didn't say, the kingdom of God is like a B-2 bomber. You know, with incredibly explosive power. The kingdom of God is like the world's greatest armies, but only greater. The kingdom of God is like a fire-breathing dragon. He didn't say any of that. You know what Jesus said? kingdom of God, it's like a seed, falls into the ground. 
Kingdom of God, it's like yeast. You got this batch of dough and you got this little bit of stuff and you sprinkle it in. And at first it seems really insignificant. On the surface it seems unimpressive. But it's really, really powerful. It just takes time. Right? A seed. <laughs> it still kind of baffles my mind. It's the, the child in me. We're going to throw this rock-like thing into the ground and allegedly something's going to come from it. But it does. That tiny little seed grows into a giant oak tree. The yeast works its way through the entire dough and lifts it up. And Jesus said that's the way his kingdom is. And so you can understand why I'm saying let's, let's not grow naive, but let's not be cynical either because we got to have hope because it's slow and it's coming, but the coming is promised. And when we go to, if we drift towards naivety, what do we do? We kind of put ourselves in a bubble and try not to get stained by the world. Just kind of retreat from things. If we drift towards cynicism, what do we do? The exact same thing, don't we? Like we drift, we pull away from the world, try to put ourselves in a bubble. And maybe it's a bubble of angrier people. You know, cynical people are usually angrier than naive people. Both of those things pull our eyes off of Jesus, both pull us away from prayer, and both pull us away from our calling to be salt and light. And so we need something better than naivety or cynicism. We need what one author called hopeful realism. Hopeful realism. Realism in that we don't deny that there's darkness in the world, but we're also hopeful because we know him who holds the future. And we know what he's doing. And so it doesn't matter what, what things look like on the surface. We are fiercely praying that his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. And we are fiercely working to order our lives and our relationship and our spheres of influence to align with his desires and his plan. I'll end with this. I was thinking about this hopeful realism and I thought about a couple of people. One, uh, my wife and I, we watched the documentary of Mr. Rogers last night called Won't You Be My Neighbor? I don't know if you've seen it. But he was one of the most hopefully realistic Man, he was a pastor. I don't know if you know that, ordained before he made his show. Hopefully realistic people in the world. His show, because you think, no, he was naive, and that was naive. No, it wasn't. I mean, first week, they're dealing with war and violence. They're dealing with racism and genocide and death and divorce. Like, he was an amazing man. So I thought of him, but then I also thought of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another man who demonstrated great hopeful realism if you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, he was a pastor in Germany in the days of Hitler. And as the Third Reich grew, it overtook the German church. Just totally gutted it of all spiritual power, faithfulness to God's word. And so Bonhoeffer and some friends, they started this, it's not that radical, but it, at the moment it was a very radical countercultural church called the Confessing Church. And what made them different is they declared Jesus is Lord, not Hitler. And it didn't take very long for the Reich to react. They started passing all these laws. They outlawed giving to the confessing church. And then eventually they outlawed the meeting of the confessing church. And so Bonhoeffer and some others 
uh, they moved, I think it was just outside, just in, into Poland, and they created this underground community of deep discipleship where they said, we're going we're gonna to raise up pastors and we're not going to roll over to this tyrant. It was there at that time that he wrote two of his most famous books, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. And I love that picture of him because it's, if he was naive, he could just go along, well, the church will be fine. Everything will work. If he was a cynic, he could just retreat, but he didn't do either. He's like, no, I'm going to resist this. And he was kind of intense. Have you ever read Bonhoeffer? Like, he's kind of intense. And after Life Together came out, a friend of his came and visited and said, like, hey, I think maybe it would be good for you to chill out a little bit. Like, I'm worried about you. There's this intensity. You don't have any time for leisure. Like, what do you do for fun anymore? In classic Bonhoeffer fashion, the next morning, Bonhoeffer put him on a boat and they canoed across a river or sound. He took him up on this hill. And I think at the top of the hill, he could see his little small community of 50 or 60 people over here. And then over here, they could witness Nazi planes landing and taking off and untold numbers of soldiers marching in unison and training. In one biography of Bonhoeffer wrote this, Bonhoeffer spoke there of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. We have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. And I think, and I heard a pastor talking about this. He's like, what a powerful picture. And it really comes out of like the, the prophetic tradition of contrast. That here's Bonhoeffer on the hill. And he's got the world kind of aiming at him. He's got Hitler who's just gaining steam. And he's standing up there. And he, he points over at his little community, and he points over here, and he says, this must be stronger than that. And he gave his life to it. And he ultimately gave his death to it. And the Third Reich, it's now just a very sad part of human history. But the church, it's still standing and moving strong. So my prayer for us as a people is that we would reject the temptation towards naivety or cynicism. We'd reject that temptation and just kind of sit on the outside and recognize that God has called us and he has told us, I want you to pray in this way and I want you to live in this way. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So as we come to the Lord's table, if you've put your faith in Christ, we encourage you to come and to eat and drink and be reminded that what was the darkest moment in human history, the breaking of the body of the Son of God and the shedding of the blood of the Son of God, God actually turned out for our good. And he used that to have his kingdom break forth into our world with force. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to come into feast, to be reminded of God's promises, and to pray that God might reawaken a desire, a holy longing within you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem you. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you for the honesty of your word. We thank you for the truth. When you give us the truth, even when it's hard, I pray, Lord, that you would stir in us a desire to know you more, a desire to live more fully into our calling as the church to be salt and light, that you would remove from us this temptation to want to be loved by the world and be just like the world, but instead we would embrace the call to live lives that are radically different than the world, lives of radical generosity and lives of radical honesty. God, stir in us a desire to look at our lives and ask hard questions. But more than anything, give us a passion to seek your face. And God, by your spirit, may you lead us to be a church that is praying continually. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.